The fact is that the Negro was a slave in this country for 244 years. That act, uh, that was uh, a willful thing that was done. The Negro was brought here in chains, treated in very human fashion. And this led to the thingification of the Negro. So he was not looked upon as a person. He was not looked upon as a human being with the same uh, status and worth as other human beings. And the other thing is that human beings cannot continue to do wrong without eventually uh, rationalizing that wrong. So slavery was justified morally, biologically, uh, theoretically, scientifically, everything else. And it seems to me that white America must see that no other ethnic group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, that is one thing that other immigrant groups haven't had to face. The other thing is that the color became a stigma. American society made the Negro's color a stigma. And uh, that can never be uh, overlooked. So I think these things are absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19... I mean, 1863, through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger. It was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven. It was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading. That clip is from an interview with NBC News that Martin did 11 months before the U.S. government would play a part in his assassination. They say Martin was killed because he ventured into economics. He learned that the issue of civil rights was married to the issue of economic rights. The vast wealth gap that exists between black and white Americans, if you listen to conservative and sometimes even liberal media, is due to issues within black culture that are the fault of black people themselves, or at best, these issues are the fault of systemic issues, but ones that black people themselves must figure out. However, race doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's a social construct that is emboldened by the society in which it exists. For this society to be truly equal, it must do something to fix this country's original sin. The society that blacks were forced to join never had any plans for their full integration, be it socially or economically. Sixty years after the civil rights movement, we've made strides socially, but black people are still falling behind in every economic indicator. Blacks make up 13% of the population in the U.S., but own 2.6% of the wealth. Are black people inherently worse with finances? Of course not. Black Americans were robbed of their sweat equity in this country, and that robbery 
along with subsequent robberies based on race, created the wealth gap between the two races. It also created the inferiority complex that little black boys and black girls have when they begin to equate white with wealth and black with poverty. Truth be told, many adults still have that engineered bias. Last season, we spoke of how the education system perpetuated and maintained racism socially. But today, we're going to discuss how we can move toward fixing the economic side of systemic racism. My name is Baudelaire, and today on The Soapbox, we're going to discuss reparations. What's that box for? It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. If now isn't a good time for the truth, I don't see when we're going to get to it. I want to venture back to 1865 after the 13th Amendment was passed. You see, after emancipation, America had about 5 million newly freed blacks with nothing to call their own. Abe Lincoln, who I should remind you only freed the slaves during the Civil War as a military tactic, and then had no choice but to pass the 13th Amendment after the war was won, did have the understanding that the black population needed some sort of reparation after centuries of bondage. As you'll hear in this informative clip from NBC News, Lincoln established a government agency that would eventually be called the Freedmen's Bureau. One of the first steps President Lincoln took to help them was urging Congress to establish the Bureau of Refugees, Freedmen, and Abandoned Lands, more commonly known as the Freedmen's Bureau, in March of 1865. The Bureau helped former slaves secure jobs by drawing up labor contracts and providing temporary housing, food, and medical care. It was also tasked with reuniting families that were separated during the Civil War. The Freedmen's Bureau legalized marriages and kept detailed records that are housed in the National Archives to this day. But perhaps its greatest achievement was in education. The Freedmen's Bureau established thousands of freedmen's schools in the South, increasing black literacy to above 30 percent. It also built several colleges that are known today as historically black colleges and universities, like Fisk University in Tennessee and Howard University in Washington, D.C., granting more than a thousand college degrees to African Americans by 1872. Now, this may be the most interesting thing I've learned in my research for this show. The U.S. government established an agency to help newly freed blacks. The Freedmen's Bureau is also where the 40 acres and a mule idea came from. That was a real promise by the U.S. government. But what I want you to remember most from that audio is the part where the woman mentioned detailed records that are housed in the National Archives till this day. That'll be important later. But why don't we know about the Freedmen's Bureau? Because it's a direct admission that something was owed. And because the Bureau never got to finish the job it only started, the debt remains. What you're probably asking yourself now is, well, what happened to the Freedmen's Bureau? Well, as you can expect, Southern whites, now having to see their former slaves prosper, hated the idea of the Freedmen's Bureau. This, mixed with the Northern whites not really caring whether the agency existed or not, led to Southerner Andrew Johnson nixing the entire agency right after he became president, when Lincoln was assassinated. Oh, and right before John Wilkes Booth killed Lincoln, he wrote, quote, This country was formed for the white, not for the black man, and looking upon African slavery from the same standpoint held by those noble framers of our Constitution, I, for one, have ever considered it one of the greatest blessings, both for themselves and us, 
that God ever bestowed upon a favored nation, end quote. Now, with funding for the Bureau cut off, those schools the Bureau built were ignored by local governments throughout the South as those governments never wanted those schools built in the first place. That's why during the civil rights era of our history books, we would see the Negro schools throughout the country being so poorly maintained. They were supposed to be maintained by the Freedmen's Bureau. So boom, just like that, no reparations and the United States admission of guilt evaporated into thin air. Now let's fast forward back to modern times and allow me to let you hear from another civil rights great who made possibly the greatest analogy of America's dealing with black people that I ever heard. You feel, however, that, uh, that we're making progress in, in this country no, and worldwide? No, no, no. Uh, I will never say that progress is being made. If you stick a knife in my back nine inches and pull it out six inches, there's no progress. Mm -hmm. You pull it all the way out, that's not progress. The progress is healing the wound that the blow, that the blow made. And they haven't even begun to pull a knife out, much less try and pull, uh, heal the wound. You have, you have they won't even admit the knife is there. <laughs> now, 156 years after emancipation, the knife remains right where America initially placed it. Some in this country, like Malcolm said, won't admit it's there, and some acknowledge its existence, but want blacks to remain patient as it's slowly removed, because after all, to remove it immediately and heal the wound would inconvenience the system that placed it. MLK himself once said we should be wary of incremental gains, that white America at best would be interested in an installment plan towards freedom. Now, Black people are owed reparations for slavery alone, and slavery is where a majority of the value of reparations should come from, but that's not it. What I'm about to read is from ta Coates' essay, A Case for Reparations, in the Atlantic. Quote, Having been enslaved for 250 years, black people were not left to their own devices. They were terrorized. In the Deep South, a second slavery ruled. In the North, legislatures, mayors, civic associations, banks, and citizens all colluded to pin black people into ghettos, where they were overcrowded, overcharged, and undereducated. Businesses discriminated against them, awarding them the worst jobs and the worst wages. Police brutalized them in the streets, and the notion that black lives, black bodies, and black wealth were rightful targets remained deeply rooted in the broader society. Now, we have half-stepped away from our long centuries of despoilment, promising never again, but still we are haunted by it. It's as though we have run up a credit card bill and, having pledged to charge no more, remain befuddled that the balance does not disappear. The effects of that balance, interest accruing daily, are all around us. End quote. And paying off that balance through reparations isn't some pie-in-the-sky idea, and as Black Lives Matter activist DeRay McKesson explains in an interview he did with the BBC, it's only seen as radical because it involves helping black people. You know, I would push and say, like, the only reason it's radical is that it's black people. We actually, you know, when you look at the history of America, it's like, we paid, we gave reparations to slave owners. When slave owners, we paid slave owners for, like, the harm of freeing their slaves. So there's, like, a, there's already a history in the country of actually paying reparations to people. Like, we've done it before. It's only when we talk about correcting the historical wrong for people of color that suddenly it becomes this, like, grand idea that nobody can imagine. It's like, why would we, why would we end slavery and then pay slave owners for, like, the harm and damage? that they were caused by like freeing people you know like that's sort of a wild thing it's like the least we could do is actually pay the people who were treated like property you know deray uses people of color in that clip as the term for people who are owed reparations but i personally feel that isn't the correct way to phrase it black people were slaves in america and the descendants of those slaves are owed reparations i, I know that's what he meant but often the term people of color gets used in place of black and then the conversation becomes less intentional aside from that i completely agree with what he said 
But even aside from the Freedmen's Bureau, America does have a history of paying out reparations. Under the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, 80,000 Japanese Americans received checks for $20,000 each, accompanied by a letter of apology for the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. And to what DeRay said about paying slave owners to free their slaves? On April 16, 1862, President Lincoln signed the District of Columbia Compensated Emancipation Act. That law outlawed slavery in the district, forcing its 900 slaveholders to free their slaves, with the government paying each owner about $300, uh, about $8,000 today, for each slave that was freed. Outside of the American context, Germany has paid hundreds of billions of dollars in reparations, not just to Israel, but to individual Holocaust survivors. So what is so controversial about paying out reparations to African Americans? Slavery is objectively the greatest crime against humanity ever perpetrated, and with the Freemans Bureau barely starting the job it set out for, African Americans are owed something. Professor Anthony Bogues from Brown University explains why many whites today can't wrap their heads around the idea of paying reparations to the descendants of American slaves. It is controversial, not because of some people argue that what you need is money. I mean, the reparations movement is divided into many branches, eh? Some people say money, some people say, no, you need to give us education. You know, I mean, people have different ways to think about reparations. But the controversy about reparations is because for you to agree to reparations in whatever form means that you have to have a discussion about your society as a slave society. That's the problem. In other words, the problem with talking about reparations is not so much give me money or don't give me money. It is that you have to admit that this was not the home of the land of the free and the brave, but this was a secular colonial society based upon slavery and genocide of the indigenous population. So the controversy is not about today. Controversy is about history. History. You see, history is interesting in America because on one hand, America wants to remember so much. America wants to remember Independence Day. Uh, America wants to falsely remember Christopher Columbus as the man who discovered it or the Founding Fathers as men of high morals. America wants to remember the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air and all that, but don't want to acknowledge the slave labor that made this country a success. What this country and those who belittle the conversation over reparations are fearful of is facing the fact that Western civilization, by and large, is built on a lie. Again, let me quote the great Ta-Nehisi Coates, quote, One cannot escape the question by hand-waving at the past, disavowing the acts of one's ancestors nor by citing a recent date of ancestral immigration. The last slaveholder has been dead for a very long time. The last soldier to endure Valley Forge has been dead much longer. To proudly claim the veteran and disown the slaveholder is patriotism a la carte. A nation outlives its generations. We were not there when Washington crossed the Delaware, but Emmanuel Gottlieb's rendering has meaning to us. We were not there when Woodrow Wilson took us into World War I, but we are still paying out the pensions. If Thomas Jefferson's genius matters, and so does his taking of Sally Hemings' body, end quote. Never in world history has there been a country that has been so economically successful as fast as America. And that success was not because America was this one nation under God. It was because of the Africans in bondage that provided free labor in the cotton fields of the South. Between 1801 and 1835, U.S. cotton comprised half of all U.S. exports. By 1840, the South grew 60% of the world's cotton. Slavery not only produced the cotton to sell, though, but through the trade of that cotton, it paid for a lot of the capital, iron, and manufactured goods that laid the basis for American economic growth. Also, because the South specialized in cotton production, the North was able to develop a lot of businesses that provided services for the slave South, 
like textile factories, insurance companies, shippers, and cotton brokers. But some whites today still fall back on, yeah, that's all horrible or whatever. Well, why should I be responsible for the payment of reparations? Ta-Nehisi Coates, who I reference a lot in this episode because he's done a lot of research and extensive writing on the subject of reparations. He explained to Vox why whites must remove the individuality they approach the topic of reparations with. Also, can I just get away from this, this sense of individual guilt? So when I talk about reparations, I am talking about America as a country, as, as a state, as, as a society. I am not talking about white people. And that's, you know, I, I got to be really clear. And I, we understand, you know, that the state, you know, acted, you know, to benefit white people. But ultimately, you know, the whole society has to come to some sort of accounting. You know, when we're talking about redlining, we're talking about things that the American government did. So, you know, like the counter you get is, well, what specific white people are going to pay? I didn't. But, you're, you know, you're part of the society. Mm-hmm. You're part of the state. And the state outlives you. You know what I mean? When you die, the state continues. You know, the state, you know, has no natural. And you benefit life. from the things that the people before yes, you, you did. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And there are people around who are being hurt by it. And so if we can get to that level, you know, I, I, I think, you know, and I say this in the piece, I think we actually will be much improved beyond reparations. They keep it at the individual level, which in a way can be seen as gaslighting because no individual was responsible for the entirety of the crime. This isn't the Holocaust where Germany as a whole was complicit, but the fault rests on one man's shoulders. No, an entire race and multiple governments were complicit in slavery. So there's no one Hitler here. In this case, there were thousands of Hitlers. So when a white person says that they and their ancestors individually had nothing to do with slavery, that's just not true. Even if their ancestor was an immigrant, the reason why America was this nice country to come to was because of the work of slaves. But we also have black people who aren't in favor of reparations or they just don't feel like reparations are a necessity. They feel like the community doesn't have the financial literacy to handle reparations. To that idea, I asked them, when do we take this mass financial literacy test that will let us know when we're ready? To say there aren't enough black people who would know what to do with reparations should they come kind of lends itself to the idea that we innately don't deal well with money. These people, though, feel we can black business our way out of oppression. And though, through supporting our own and keeping our dollars in our community does strengthen us greatly, we simply don't own enough of the wealth in the United States to compete on a national level. Like I said before, we make up 13% of the population, but own 2.6% of the wealth. The white unemployment rate is 3.1% and the black is 6.4%. 76% of whites own their home, while just 47% of blacks own their home. 26% of whites will receive an inheritance, and 8% of blacks will receive an inheritance. And finally, the median net worth of a white household nationwide is $171,000, while the black median is $17,150. The source for all those numbers is the U.S. Census Bureau. There is no equality in America without reparations. It's just impossible. And by equality, I mean a world where the content of one's character weighs more than one's race. Black businesses struggle to compete to gain a significant market when concerning just the black community, let alone actually competing nationwide. And this isn't the fault of black people. We don't have the capital or the history of acquiring capital to compete with major white corporations who have had access to wealth since before we even had freedom. Often, people use the handful of black billionaires to disprove this theory that wealth accumulation is impossible for black people. I don't really care for billionaires in general and don't feel it should be legal for one person to have that much wealth, but I'll humor the argument. According to Forbes, In 2020, there were seven black billionaires in America. Seven. There are 52 white billionaires living in Florida. Black economic success on that level is an anomaly and is in spite of the racist system, not because of it. 
I'm not saying this to say we're hopeless, just the opposite, actually. I'm confident we'll receive reparations, if not just for the fact that we have the political leverage to make it happen. The severity of the problem and feasibility of actually gaining reparations are what our community needs to understand to make it happen. An expert on the matter of reparations, uh, Claude Anderson, spoke to Congress in 2000, where he made the need clear. But the thing that's most important, I'm going to quit, is that you got to understand that reparations are an absolute necessity. We're going to get buried alive. We do not have enough to be able to compete in this society. And the further we get away from, from, from the civil rights movement, the worse things are going to get. And when people start talking about slavery, don't just talk about slavery. Talk about Jim Crow slavery and benign neglect. You got to understand what slavery was. Slavery is the illegitimate child of racism. Racism still exists. That's slavery. Because what racism does, racism keeps and maintains what was created by slavery. Now, racism is a, is a competitive economic struggle between groups of people for power and wealth. And it's slavery, I mean, and, and, and racism never existed until the 16th century. And when slavery went out of existence, racism took over. Racism has gone from being meaning slavery to being something biological. Then it moved on in by the 1800s. It turns to be something as a personal behavior or an attitude, and now bias and a prejudice. Slave, I mean, racism has nothing to do with uh, attitudes, with prejudice, and with bias. Slave, uh, racism is a competitive group contest between people for race resources and for superiority. And racism is a never is a race without a finish line. I thank you very much. Claude Anderson kind of said a lot there, but the point is racism is a competitive economic struggle between groups of people for power and wealth. If we want to begin to remove this competition from our society, the only way to do that is to remove the wealth gap. As I said before, race is a social construct and to make things equal, we need to undo the actions of those who created the social construct. The problem wasn't created by blacks. The problem was created by the whites who began the slave trade, profited and continued the slave trade. And finally, Andrew Johnson and the Southerners who nixed the country's only hope of healing the wound at the time of emancipation. So those ancestors of today's whites are to blame for this immense debt. But in American society, less so today, but still to an extent, the idea of reparations remains a radical idea. Even if you do think it's a radical idea, that doesn't necessarily mean it shouldn't happen. But... It's labeled radical to make it seem like a pipe dream, something that will be so difficult that there's no point of having the conversation. Sadly, the number one news network in this country is Fox News. And on that channel, the reparations conversation sounds like this. It is the party of reparations. Presidential candidates say Americans should be rewarded or punished based on their skin color. My great-great-grandfather, he fought with the Union Army. Do I get a discount? No need to grapple with practical questions about the proposal, like how you determine who receives and who pays for the reparations, how much it would cost, whether Nigerians who just arrived here would benefit. It is impossible to come up with a fair metric for recompensing slavery. Yeah. 10 generations after slavery's end. How do you calculate the financial penalty for injustices that my great-grandfather committed against somebody else's great-grandfather? Nobody alive today has a grandparent who was a slave. And in that sense, I think you reach a point where, you know, you need to move on. All right, let me answer those in reverse order. First, the guy that said, get over it. It's actually great he said that because I do believe most white people feel that way. When you look at the numbers I gave y'all a few minutes ago, it's clear that an injustice was committed. Let's bring back median household income, for example. 
Whites at 171,000 and blacks at 17,000. Again, to say that isn't linked to something is to say black people are inherently worse with money, which just isn't true. Though nobody has a grandfather who was or owned slaves, a great-grandfather or great-great-grandfather is enough because wealth doesn't just evaporate, it's passed down. Claude Anderson once said that blacks have been left out of a real-life monopoly game. To borrow that analogy, blacks were not collecting their money from passing go and were paying out twice as much as other players for centuries. And to now look and wonder why blacks aren't doing well in the game or say, get over the inequity, is a pretty laughable premise. Now to the how do you count the injustices that dude's grandfather committed against another person's grandfather. Well, I'm going to dive into that a bit deeper later, but a simple answer is something like H.R. 40, which is a bill that establishes a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans. H.R. 40 is an easy answer because it does just that. It calculates the worth of the injustice and figures exactly how to correct said injustice. Now to the most unlikable person I've ever seen, Ben Shapiro's pretty much saying that it'd been too long and that it's almost impossible. Well, if you remember from earlier in the episode, I mentioned that one of the things the Freedmen's Bureau was able to do was establish detailed records of blacks post-slavery that are still in Washington today. Put simply, you need those records. Using those records will give a starting point as who is a descendant of American slaves. And the uh, shut up and dribble lady asked if Nigerians would get paid. That's actually a really good question. Probably the best question out of all of those people. And the answer is no. Reparations for slavery are due to the descendants of that nation's slaves. As much as I believe America owes, I don't believe America should pay all of the reparations that are owed for slavery. The other nations of Europe owe reparations too. And the people and the nations that they enslaved should get money from those countries. Nigerians are owed reparations from England, without a doubt. My parents were both born in Haiti, and Haiti's reparations are owed by France. Even as children of black immigrants and black immigrants ourselves, we should support the African-American struggle for reparations, even if we won't directly be involved, because America is the leader of the Western world. No other nation will pay reparations or even consider it until America has. We can't get in our own way here and start being anti-reparations because it'll exclude us. No, there's a bigger picture here and America has to be the first domino to fall. Also, the influx of money that will come into our communities through descendants of American slaves getting reparations will undoubtedly help us all, even indirectly. Who receives and who pays was asked. Well, that was kind of answered already, but the government that benefited from slavery would pay using taxpayer dollars and the descendants of slaves would be paid. It's not a situation where each white person would get a bill with a certain amount. That'd be pretty ridiculous, but... The state benefited, so the state should pay. To the guy whose great-grandfather fought in the Union Army, no discount, but I'm sure his great-grandfather received his pension. That's his thank you from the government. And the reward, or punished based off skin color, that kicked off the line of clips, that doesn't even really warrant a response. But now, here we are at exactly how reparations can and will be paid. I don't really like answering this question because it's not solely on the shoulders of black people to come up with a system of repayment. And the legacy of slavery exists in so many aspects of our society, it's hard to say. But William Darity, public policy professor at Duke, estimated that full reparations, meaning closing the wealth gap completely, would cost the U.S. 10 to 12 and some say even 14 trillion dollars. In 2019, the U.S. GDP was 21.5 trillion. Numbers that large immediately lead people to be wary of inflation. But Darity accounted for that in one of his ideas for reparations that was explained in a video by CNBC. 
Inflation and the cost of adding to the national debt are two of the biggest barriers to extending or expanding federal programs. To avoid inflation, Darity proposes trust accounts, or some form of an endowment where the recipient can spend a percentage of the money on an annual basis and keep the rest in an interest-earning account. The idea is that the amounts of those uh, direct payments should be sufficient to eliminate racial wealth differences in the course of a decade. We think that the delivery of funds to individuals is the most precise and accurate way to address the wealth differential. But that's not the only idea. A more conservative and far cheaper idea is to look at the 40 million acres that were supposed to have been allocated to blacks through the Freedmen's Bureau and simply pay out the value in cash payments to the estimated 35 million blacks that'd be eligible. The value of that land, which stretches seaside from Charleston, South Carolina to Jacksonville, Florida, totals at about $1.5 to $2 trillion. That makes the minimum estimate per person to be about $40,000 to $60,000. For reference, when discussing this idea, the initial coronavirus relief bill totaled at $2 trillion. But again, the burden does not rest on the shoulders of black people, but on the U.S. government to pay what's owed. Until this conversation is given the importance it warrants, this country isn't even close to where it needs to be in terms of reconciliation of its racial history. As Boyce Watkins, an African-American author, economist, and political analyst, said on Lord Jamar's podcast just a few months ago. Now, here's the, here's the paradox you have, though. America really can't afford to repay what it's owed to black people. They owe us about $14 trillion. It, it would be hard for them to do that. But that doesn't mean they should be let off the hook. And also, um, until they actually really address it head on directly in a significant way, make it a tip top priority, then that is a signal that we're not where we need to be racially. You know, you, you can tell me Black Lives Matter all day long. You can talk all day about, you know, <clears throat> about police shootings and everything else. Those are all important issues. That's great. Thank you. But if you're not ready to address the core issue of reparations, like think about this, right? Kamala Harris does an interview with Angela Ryan. I cut it off there only because the story of Kamala Harris that Dr. Watkins gets into is kind of long. But essentially what he said is that it's a joke that Angela Ryan can sit down with Kamala Harris and ask her what her favorite rap artist is, but never bring up reparations for black people. And I agree. That's kind of odd, given I'm sure both women's understanding of the need for reparations. But I'm sure Angela felt it'd be disadvantageous for Kamala to discuss reparations for black people so close to the election, which kind of goes to prove Boyce Watkins' whole point. What I get from what Boyce said, though, is helping black people through any other policy aside from reparations is putting a Band-Aid on a gunshot wound. I like what he said at the end about BLM and police shootings also, because those causes and the attention they gained last summer with the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor brought a lot of eyes to the plight of black people in America. Many whites declared themselves allies last summer. And I want to make it clear to not just white people, but all people, that you are not an ally to the black community if you are not in support of reparations for the greatest crime against humanity that has ever been perpetrated. Anything else, and I'm talking prison or police reform, expanded welfare, or any of the policies they dangle in front of black America to incrementally improve the experience of being black in America, are a drop in the bucket. Nothing when compared to the impact of full and direct reparations for slavery. What we see when the conversation gets here, though, is that some whites aren't committed to genuine equality for blacks. They want police shooting black people so brutally to stop more than they actually want the whole of black America to be directly repaid and our place reshifted in the society. America's favorite black person that they murdered got to this point in his interview with NBC that kicked off this episode. Uh, because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of 
of racial equality. And I must confess that I think they're in a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they are always looking for an excuse uh, to go but so far. And now we can only handle what's in front of us. Black Americans, blacks from throughout the diaspora, non-black people of color, and white allies, we can all, in this day, play a part in correcting this nation's original sin. The path to this correction begins with H.R. 40. H.R. 40 establishes a commission to study and develop reparation proposals for African Americans, as I had said before. This bill was initially introduced by Congressman John Conyers in 1989, only a year after Japanese Americans were given their reparations for the internment of World War II. Later in his life, Conyers reflected that the bill's introduction, even though support was barely there, was a necessary step in furthering the fight for the civil rights of African Americans. I would be remiss if I didn't actually let the late John Conyers' words play in this episode. As a member of the Judiciary Committee, the first African American on the House Judiciary Committee in its history, it became very clear that as we struggle with the questions of civil rights, affirmative action, equality of opportunity, uh, there must be some historical cognition on our part about the whole question of reparations. Well, now the Democrats, the Progressive Party as they consider themselves, control the House and the Senate. And though John Conyers passed away in 2019, Sheila Jackson Lee, a black female congresswoman from Texas, has taken it upon herself to put the bill before Congress in 2020 and this year. Joe Biden said on the campaign trail that he supports the bill, and in his inaugural address, he acknowledged that, quote, a cry for racial justice some 400 years in the making moves us, and the dream for justice for all will be deferred no longer, unquote. Well, the clock is running, Joey. If the Democrats don't deliver tangible gains for the black community in the next two years, I would hope our community reevaluates our relationship with the Democratic Party and perhaps this country in general. If we do not come into the 2022 Senate and House elections with at least H.R. 40 passed, then I say we do withhold our vote and show the Democrats who hands them the elections that they managed to win. Because then our focus must shift to 2024 and the message must be sent loud and clear to the party of progressives that their lifeline is us. And if our needs are not met, we're pulling the plug. We could survive another Republican administration, but what we have to do is figure out a way to get what is owed. We have to look at the big picture. I am no capitalist, but I see that in a capitalist society, there isn't much hope for a community without wealth. White allies who are not sure how to support and are tired of repeating the same line about acknowledging their privilege can use their privilege here. Stand with us in pressuring this government to pass H.R. 40, because once it's passed and the proposals for reparations are made, we're then going to have to apply even more pressure to get one of those proposals through government. If you don't think reparations are possible or are unlikely or unrealistic, then fine. Let's see. H.R. 40 does just that, allows us to see. What could reparations actually look like? Could it be the interest-bearing accounts William Darity proposed? Possibly. Could it be one-time checks to all descendants of American slaves? That's also possible. But we will not know until we get this bill through. As black people, we have nothing to lose, and we have believed in legislation that offered far less tangible gains than this. This is definitely, at least, worth a shot. And if white America doesn't atone for and accept its history, meaning the good that it loves to remind the world about and the bad, then they will continue to be prisoners of that history. The atonement of that history, as it concerns the history of slavery, 
begins with and is immensely progressed by paying reparations to the descendants of American slaves. H.R. 40 must be passed. Call your local congressmen and women and demand it. To find your local member of Congress, go to house.gov backslash representatives backslash find dash your dash representative. Post about it all over social media. Let it be known that you understand the crime against humanity that was slavery and the apartheid that black Americans dealt with after. Let it be known that you understand the immense injustice of the act of slavery and the restorative economic justice of reparations. Without it, I don't see how this nation can continue to live this lie of liberty and justice for all much longer. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Soapbox. You can go to bonos.com for the full versions of all the audio clips used in this episode. That's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S dot com. And as is the case with all episodes of The Soapbox, I'm welcoming opinions, questions, concerns, whatever you have. Just send me a voice memo. You can use the feature on your phone, record what you have to say, and send it to thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's thesoapboxpod at gmail.com. Every now and then, I'm going to do a bonus episode where I respond to the voice memos I got. You can follow me on Instagram at Bo Knows. Again, that's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S. Or on Twitter at Baudelaire. That's B-A-U-D-E-L-A-I-R-E. And yeah, the Soapbox merch can also be found at bonos.com. I should mention that. My name is Baudelaire, and thank you for listening to The Soapbox. I pray that God will bless you in everything that you do. I pray that you will grow intellectually so that you can understand the problems of the world and where you fit into in that world picture. This is what we are faced with, and this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check.